As we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to behold him as he has revealed himself in the word. And so our text of Holy Scripture this morning as we prepare for the preaching of God's word is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we simply confess our confidence in your word right now that it will indeed stand forever. Grass will go, flowers will fade, our lives and generations will pass. But Jesus tells us in the word that not a jot or a tittle, not a dot or a least stroke will ever disappear from your word until his coming again in the kingdom of heaven. Father, we look forward this morning to hearing from you in your word as we study and reflect upon the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would ask now that you be mindful of our frame, the various needs of each and every soul in this room. Take account of who we are and what it is that we need. And would you today, by the power of your spirit, take these truths on wings. And let them soar into our hearts. That we might receive this, the truth of the gospel, with transformative power. For your glory and for the good of your people, the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was December the 23rd in 2008. I received a phone call from... One of my friends, he spoke in hush tones about what he alleged on the phone was a family tragedy. I've been working with the family in some pastoral counseling for several weeks. There was some concerns that the Lord had revealed in those in whom I was meeting with And so this call, though very surprising in one sense, in terms of its time, was not without some context. He didn't go into any detail with me on the phone. He simply asked, can you come to my house immediately? When I showed up at his house, there were cars out front, probably 10, 11, 12 cars. And some of them I seemed to recognize, but I I didn't think too much about that. I, with some fear and trepidation, went to the door to find out what it is that was happening. I knocked on the door. My friend came to the door, and he opened it up, and he had this big smile on his face. He said, come on in. I walked in, and I saw about 15 of some of my dearest friends within the church. 
They all, with wry smiles upon their face, looking at me almost with a puzzled, like, what are you doing here, kind of look. And there, sitting on the very center of the coffee table in the living room, was a gift certificate. A gift certificate to buy a green egg. That's right, a grill. And a grill that I'd had my eyes on for several years and knew, according to my wife's calculations of our budget, that I would never own. <laughs> they also knew that being a pastor was not a get-rich-quick scheme, and so they realized that if I was ever going to own one, they were going to need to buy it for me. And this alleged family tragedy was simply a ploy to get me to go out late at night on the eve before Christmas Eve to go and pick up a gift that they had all chipped in to buy for me. In that moment, receiving that gift, you can imagine that I felt very, very loved. I, I knew how much that gift cost, first of all, but it was beyond the cost, it was the thoughtfulness. It was the fact that it came from a place of care, a place of love, that they simply wanted to tell me and show me tangibly how much that they loved me. And they wanted me to enjoy some really good pork shoulder for the next 10 years, which I have done. You know, when I pick up this Bible, sometimes as I do, and I'll look at this very first page, it's, it's a reminder of God's kindness to me. It says, to the Reverend Nate Sheridan, a minister of the gospel, by Timothy Butler, John David Cole, Marshall Hollis, Ruffin Lowry, and Damon Wofford. On the 17th of July, 2006, with love for our teacher, brother, and friend. That's right, this Bible, which I preach from week after week, was given to me in 2006 by a small band of of brotherly leaders that I was equipping and training at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Some dear young men who I'm very, very grateful were partners with me in the gospel there. So I don't enter into the pulpit in one sense without a gift, a gift from friends, week in and week out. Gifts are so important to the feeling and the experience of love. In fact, if you were to go back over the course of your life and recount times in which people have gone out of their way to gift to you, whether in tangible things such as this or trips or coming in with some financial assistance in a time where things were really, really difficult, you know that it's in those moments and through the expressions of those gifts that the depth of love is really revealed. Greater, of course, than any of these kinds of gifts, though, even a gift not even worthy to be compared, is the gift that we have received in salvation through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in this passage, wants to tell us about that gift. He wants to reflect with us and proclaim the glories of that gift. And he's been doing so since the very opening verses of this great letter of Ephesians. And he comes here to Ephesians chapter 2 and he zeroes in in summary fashion 
on the beauty of this salvation by grace through faith. This week, we are talking about this gift of faith. Next week, we're actually going to talk about that language of grace, sola gratia, the third clarion call or plank of the Reformation. But today, we want to zero in on this gift that he describes as faith, that it's not of our own doing. But even this is a gift of the Lord. I want to look at faith under the rubric of gift in just three ways with you this morning. I want to look first at the gift of faith. I want to look secondly at the faith that God gives. And I want to look thirdly at the life of God-given faith. The gift of faith, the faith that God gives, and the life of God-given faith. Faith. I think we find all of the richness of those three realities right here in this, these couple of verses, including the context of Ephesians chapter 2. Well, you see it right there, the gift of faith. It's right on the surface of our text, isn't it? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now, over the years, if you just glance down at that verse with me, you can see that that scholars would have actually wrestled a little bit with this text, particularly with, with uh, that second word in that second sentence, that this, that pronoun. What is the this referring to? And I tend to agree with most of the scholars that it's referring to the, the whole half of that first verse, that whole first sentence. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, all of it, <laughs> The grace, the salvation, and the faith, the whole of it, the work and experience of salvation completely and in every sense is a gift from God. As my grandmother would say, the whole kit and caboodle, the completeness. There's not one part of it and not some way, shape, and form is the gift of God. Now, when we refer to this whole of salvation as a gift of God, it means that we're, we can't contribute anything to it. That we didn't in any way earn or merit or gain or achieve in some way this salvation that comes to us through Christ. No, it is out of the benevolence of God. It's out of his charity. It's out of his care and his love. That he gives to us a salvation that we could not otherwise be able to possess if it weren't for his kindness and his mercy. Now our emphasis though is on this particular piece, this emphasis of faith. That faith, as the theologians like to call this, the instrumental cause or the means by which we access salvation. According to Paul, he doesn't just give us the grace of salvation that's found in Christ. He actually gives us the faith by which we lay hold of that salvation and receive its blessings and its benefits. That's right. Not even our faith is our own. It, too, is a gift of God. Now I've spoken to many over the years that find this very, very difficult to understand or even difficult to believe because having heard the gospel and being convinced of its truth, they chose, or so it seemed, they chose for themselves to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at one level, that's a faithful way of describing salvation. We are called and commanded in the word of God to exercise or to choose Christ. 
And that is an exercise of faith. It's an exercise of volition, our own will. But when we get underneath that exercise of faith, that manifest action of our soul to embrace Christ, what we realize is it doesn't come from ourselves, that even the ability to exercise faith is gifted to us. The Bible says that we're actually incapable of exercising faith on our own. At the opening of Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you might just glance at those opening verses. Paul is talking about the Ephesians pre-conversion state, and you know how he describes it? Well, we read it a little bit ago in the Confession of Sin. He says, this is what you were like pre-conversion. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, you were following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, and his power was at work in you, and you're described as a son of disobedience. He goes on later to say that you're enslaved to the passions of the mind and the flesh, that you are by nature, like all of mankind, children of wrath. That's probably not something you put on your resume. But the spiritual reality of your pre-conversion state, the Apostle Paul, is, is one that is completely and utterly spiritually dead. We are, as it were, flatliners when it comes to the spirit world previous to conversion. You can keep checking your spirit for a pulse, and there just isn't one according to the, the Bible. You're going to get nothing every time. The reason that's a hard pill for some of us to swallow is that we know people who make no profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who appear to be alive. They have good minds. They have fit bodies. They have lively personalities. We enjoy being around them. They do good deeds. They care deeply for others. And from any kind of worldly standard, as best as we can tell, these people have a livingness about their spirit. The problem is that the Bible categorizes and defines life differently than lively activity. Or the appearances of external goodness. The scripture locates the essence of life as in relationship with God. The scripture locates true life, real life, spiritual life, eternal life as that which can only be found in God. In Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul is going to talk about the Gentiles. And he talks about them in this way. He says, before they knew Christ, they were separated from the life of God. Now, did those Gentiles, before they knew Christ, did they laugh? <laughs> yes. Did, did they do good things? Occasionally, yes. Uh, did they have a good time? Were they able to engage mentally? Were some of them maybe even scholars? Yes, but they didn't have life in God. Spiritually, God was not their source or their reference point for the existence of life. They who were made in the image of God had decided to serve and be enslaved to the creature rather than the creator. They had made themselves and everything in life about life rather than God being the very essence of their life. 
John Stott says it this way in his commentary. He says, you can tell when someone has no life in God because they live with a blindness to the glory of Jesus Christ. They're not necessarily blind to everything, but what are they blind to? They're blind to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it this way. They live life deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They live life with no love for God, no awareness of his personal reality. Their heart doesn't leap towards him in the cry, Abba, Father. They are, as it relates to God, unresponsive as a corpse. Do you hear what Stott is saying in that? He's not saying that there's no manifest evidence of a certain quality or type of life in them. He's saying, though, that the very essence of spiritual life is completely void. There's no Godward direction. There's no reference point for who God is in life. Now, here's the point that Paul's making in Ephesians chapter 2. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, enslaved to the mind and the lust of the flesh, under the prince and the power of darkness... If you, if you are children of wrath like all of mankind, how is it that you can on your own initiative exercise faith and trust in Christ? I don't know about you, but I don't see dead men doing a whole lot. They're usually dead. They need new life. They, they need what the scripture calls regeneration. They need a work of the Holy Spirit to come in and resurrect them from the spiritual graveyard and give to them the gift of faith. You see, what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2, he says, God is so kind that he understands how desperate your spiritual condition is. Can you imagine if God simply gave you a grace salvifically offered in Jesus Christ and then gave you no ability to lay hold of it by faith? That would be one of the most unkind and unmerciful, unloving and ungracious things to do. Is to say, I've got an absolutely prepared salvation for you. Now you, on your own initiative, lay hold of it by faith. But you can't. So God, by his grace, not only provides for you full salvation in Christ, he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, awakens you to that salvation, that you might behold it and receive and rest in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Do you see the whole of the work of salvation is the very gift of Almighty God? Now, there are two things that arise from this gift of faith that he he gives us here, and you can probably, hopefully experience it even as we're talking about it right now. When you begin to realize that you, on your own initiative, through your own instinct or impulse, were not just bright enough to assess the glory of who Jesus was and strong enough in your will to be able to seize upon him by faith, but you need help even to do that. That he put before you the rich food of Jesus Christ, but you didn't even have the strength to lift the spoon to your mouth in order to receive its nutrients and its blessings. And so, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives you even the strength to do that. You know what begins to happen in your heart? You begin to melt in love with the God who would do that for you. You begin to realize this God loves you so much. 
that he's willing to go to whatever length he needs to go to draw you into fellowship with him. It's a powerful display of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I pray begins to happen in your own heart is a sense of worship. As you begin to behold this God and his power and his love for you. Are you experiencing that right now even as we consider what it is that he has done and the great lengths that he has gone to to show his love for you that he would even give to you the very gift of faith in order that you might seize upon him and all of his benefits. That's one of the things that the Apostle Paul is after here in Ephesians 2, is that this morning, by his grace, as we sit in this passage, that you would have lofty and glorious and loving thoughts of God for the power of his salvation as it's manifested in the gift of faith. That's what he wants for you this morning. You know the second thing he wants? He wants you to be put in your place. He wants you to experience the humility of how broken and sinful that you actually are and how incapable we are as a people of doing anything Godward, of having anything good arise in us that would be directed to God apart from his aid in grace. You know, one of the things that keeps us so often from a lack of intimacy from God and a sense of closeness to God is thinking that we can do it on our own. That we can just make a choice and get close to God. That we can make a choice and obey God. I don't know about you, but I've found that every time I go to do something good, sin is right there with me. And it's drawing me away from Him. As Every time I commit to do something, every time I try to do something, if He doesn't assist me, in the grace of putting the sin to death and the unbelief to death and seizing upon Christ by faith. And it's utterly hopeless because my flesh is strong and the tendency of the sinful nature of man is so powerful that apart from the grace of God, we will never seize upon Christ by faith and we won't follow him in obedience. It just won't happen. So one of the glories in the Reformation was recovering and acknowledging the fact that even the faith that we have been given is a gift from God. Can you imagine if faith was considered our first work that we needed to conjure up in order to receive Christ and his salvation? That's how it was often perceived in the late medieval period. That you need to exercise the work of faith and obedience in order to gain or access the benefits of God. Do you know instead, you know what the Protestant Reformation said? It says, listen, you can't even exercise the act of faith. You know what you have to do? Surrender in pleading with God that he will change you. Do you know how close God is to you? And the intimacy that you should experience with God, do you know how close it is? It's equal to the proportion of the desperateness you feel for him. It's equal to the desperateness of what you feel for him. You ever wonder why you don't feel that close to God? When I do my own evaluation of my own heart, when I feel a distance from the Lord, you know what it is? It's because I don't feel like I need him. I've got it. Thank you. I'll come back to you if I need you. You're a, you're a great resource if I run out of my efforts and what the, the very foundation of the gospel is, is, is you, don't, you don't have any resources. And so you've got to start at a place of utter desperation and plead 
for the Lord to come in and do his work. This is the power of what the Reformation crystallized around justification by faith alone or salvation by faith alone. It lifted up God and it put man in his place. And you would think, friends, wouldn't you, that, oh, that would just injure our sense of self-esteem. That would just lay us so despairing or discouraging that we can't do what it is that we're called to do. Friends, let me tell you, when the more you begin to experience the right kind of humility that the Scripture speaks of you and embrace the way the Bible talks about you with regards to your neediness for Christ, and the more you see that God has provided all that you need in Christ through the power of His Spirit, I don't know about self-esteem, but I do know about God-esteem begins to happen. And what I have found is I need to think less of myself and more of God. And the more I think about God and the less I think about myself, the better myself is. See, the Reformation was turning this all on its head. And it was getting us self-absorbed tendencies to begin to look at the beauty of who Jesus is. This is the faith that God gives. This is the faith that God gives. Now, how does this faith work? How does this faith work? I want to just take a moment to really unpack the nature of this faith. Because not all faith is created equal. Not all faith is created equal. Think about it. Uh, James chapter 2. James says, you believe, speaking of the audience that he's speaking to in his epistle, you believe there is one God, good. Even the devil believes and shudders or trembles. Uh, James describes demons as those who believe. We might say they have a measure of of faith, But I think it's fair to say, I, don't, I hope that you'll go here with me, they probably don't have a saving kind of faith. They're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they believe. They believe something, but it's not a saving faith. Uh, Jesus speaks similarly about the Jews in John chapter 8. The Jews are described in verse 31 as those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then later in verse 44, you know what he says about them? He says this, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. So the Jews that were believing in Jesus are of the devil, their father, and they want to carry out his desires. So I think I'm on pretty level, solid rock ground to be able to say that there's some faith that doesn't save. Theologians have noticed this over the years, and they have sought, scoured the scriptures, try to understand what does it mean to be truly saved, to have known that you have genuinely trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've, they've really defined faith in three different ways. And these three components, according to theologians from the Bible, these three components are needed with regards to saving faith. And the first component is this, it's knowledge. It's knowledge. Faith comes in and through knowledge. You've probably heard someone out there in the world describe faith as a leap into the darkness. I don't know about you, but I just don't do leaps into darkness. I know as someone who enjoys rock climbing and hiking in my uh, younger, more fit days, um, 
I would often run, jump from one rock to the next. If I didn't think I could make it to the other rock, I didn't jump. It just didn't happen. If I thought I had both the ability, the knowledge, the security of the rock on which I was going to jump, it made it a lot more enticing to jump. I, I jumped because I had a sense of the security, the knowledge, the certainty that would come from that activity. The Bible, when it speaks of faith, is speaking about a knowledge-filled faith. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about it as good news. What is news? What's information? It's content. It's having some rudimentary knowledge of something, so much so that you believe it's deserving to put your trust in. Sometimes our weakness of faith comes from the fact that we just don't have very solid knowledge from which our faith is operating. Have you ever, have you ever found in your Christian life where you're walking with doubts and those doubts are largely rooted in the fact that you don't know enough about God in which to alleviate the concerns for your doubt and so you imagine the worst about what he's doing or what he's up to? I've certainly fallen prey to that. Knowledge is an essential component to faith. It means doctrinal study is critical. But now, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's very likely that the demons themselves have some true knowledge about who God is. In, in fact, I think we have a really good confidence to say that they do. In Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus is casting out two demons... The demon actually says things that the people in the crowd don't even know about Jesus. The, the demon says, why do you bother us? Why do you come to us, O Son of God? Whoa. They, they don't just know Jesus in terms of his human name. They know the character and the quality of his divinity. They, they spoke a true word about who Jesus is. Then they claim this in Matthew chapter 8. They say, have you come now to torment us ahead of time? As if to allude to the fact that one day they will be eternally tormented, but they're noting that this is too early of a time, and so he should go away. They're also right about that. There is going to be a time of judgment where the evil spirits will be utterly, as it were, bound and, and kept in the rightful judgment that they've inherited according to their own sins. So when we think about true knowledge, it's important, but it's not enough. Secondly, theologians have noted that it's not just enough to have true knowledge. We also need this thing called assent. That is belief in the truth of the knowledge. Belief in the truth of the knowledge. This is actually a little bit more than just uh, the knowledge. This is drawing the knowledge together and say, not only are you the Son of God, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are the Son of God. I'm trusting in this. I'm, I'm believing in this. I, I, I know this to be true. It's still cognitive. It's still all up just in the head. It's still very abstract, but it's absolutely critical. In fact, some of you in this room may, as you're rehearsing in your own mind, you're coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you remember a time where it came to you where the knowledge of who Jesus is struck you for the first time. In, in a sense, a light bulb went off in your head. 
it clicked. And then all of a sudden you begin to ponder it and you go, that's true. Ascent. And then later this dimension uh, began to move towards something even deeper. What the theologians call trust. Moving from knowledge to understanding to trust. This is where you actually surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You give yourself over to him. It's more than just than intellectual faith. It's more than abstract or rudimentary knowledge. It's where you decide you will put the whole of yourself, all of the eggs in the basket of Jesus. And you will relax the entirety of your weight upon him who is the rock. John Calvin put it this way. Faith is not a distant view. It's not an abstract or intellectual view. But it is a warm embrace. Because the seat of faith is not in the brain, but is in the heart. Isn't one of the things that we most wrestle with in our Christian life is talking about making the 18-inch journey from our heads to our hearts with regards to knowledge? Parents in this room, don't you often worry that your kids go grow up knowing the facts of the faith, the true facts of the faith, and never experiencing the real transformation of the Spirit? That's the movement that we're talking about, that there is a knowledge that is true knowledge that is actually believed in the head but has never been truly trusted in by the heart. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the kind of faith that God gives. You see, you can come to intellectual knowledge. You can even come to an agreement with regards to truth. But your ability to relinquish yourself into the arms of Jesus and receive and relax upon him and him alone for salvation is not something you can do. Only the Holy Spirit can grant it. Only the Holy Spirit can grant it. And so when we talk about this saving faith that's a gift from God, we're not talking about catechism answers. We're not talking about memorized Bible verses. Is that important? Knowledge is a key component. Is that saving faith not on its own? We know that all too well, right? How many things do you know that haven't changed your life? A lot. And isn't the work of the Christian faith working into your soul through the power of the Holy Spirit the things that you know that haven't really made a difference in terms of transformation? Do you see, that's what we're pursuing. Faith is a gift from God. This is the gift of faith that God gives. So what would it be like to actually live from that place? That leads us to our last point, living a life of God-given faith. What does that mean? Horatius Bonar put it this way. He says, Upon a life I did not live, and upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. I stake my whole eternity. I've used the language of receiving and resting. Have you heard that? It's actually the language of our membership vows here at Cornerstone. Question number two, have you received and rested upon Christ alone for your salvation as he's offered in the gospel? We're not asking, do you have the details doctrinally all correct? We're asking a question about your soul. Have you come to receive and embrace 
the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how you know if you're beginning to receive and rest upon him? Is Jesus moving from something that's plausible that you kind of believe is true to something that's overwhelmingly beautiful that you must and are compelled to serve? That's how you know. Are you receiving and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your soul making that pivot? Is it moving from just plausibility, truthfulness, cognitive ascent? Is it moving from that to overwhelming beauty and compelling desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what the receiving and the resting of the Lord Jesus Christ actually means. R.C. Sproul put it this way. It's about apprehending the faith, its truth, and the beauty. It's opening up your hand to the need of Christ and seeing with him all that you've ever hoped for. All that you've ever hoped for. It's not that Christ is a nice addendum to your otherwise happy Middle Tennessee life. It's that Christ has become your life. And all of it is lived in reference point to him. And none of it matters if it's not in connection to him. Everything sours if it's not brought into relationship with him. And everything is rejoicing and comes to light when it's connected to him. You see, the Christian's beginning to make that pivot in his heart when he's receiving and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Now, let me tell you, friends, that doesn't just happen, though it might, I pray, for a few minutes on Sunday morning during the middle of a sermon or a hymn or a verse where you go, oh, for this moment I love God and it's gone. Okay? Like, it's not like exactly like that. There is the disciplined life of the Christian that says, I want to constantly be about the stirring up of my affections to God so that every day I'm reenlivened. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. I'm renewed in the spirit of my mind with regards to who Christ is, how much I need him, and the beauty of what is offered to me in the gospel. I'm renewed. I've got to pursue it every day. It's got to be stirred up every day. Now listen, what that means is if you really want the experience of this kind of life, it's going to take time. You've got to be with God for that to happen. You've got to sit and turn it over in your mind. You've got to reflect on it. If you're experiencing just a little bit of it now, think of it. We're 25, 30 minutes into the sermon. It gets us a little while to get there. This is why the idea of savoring the message of the gospel is so much, so much richer than just consuming it. One of, I think, the weaknesses in our experience of the joy of the Lord is we get it quickly and we move on to something else rather than sitting in it and staying in it. Soaking, letting it wash over us, turning it over and connecting it in our minds. To where we get to the place where we're not just receiving and we're not just resting, but we're beginning to rejoice in Christ. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see when Paul says that at the end of Romans chapter 11? He has just come through the riches of gospel truth from Romans 7, 8, and 9. Wrestling with the life of the Spirit in Romans 6. Talking about no condemnation in Christ in Romans 9. The electing and powerful and securing love of God in Romans, uh, Romans 9 and extending into Romans 10. And by the end of Romans 11, he's just bubbling over in worship from the Lord. And he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, when Martin Luther said that he had a particularly busy day, he would move from praying two hours to praying three. You see the counterintuitiveness of that. He had a particularly stressful and busy day coming, so he cut down on his prayer time. Wrong. He secured more time to sit with the Lord. He knew it would be more challenging. Oftentimes, the sweetness and the affections for Christ and his loveliness are dull to our hearts because he's not been set before us. And we've not taken time to stare into his lovely face to let the things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, when we begin to see the face of the Lord Jesus, we begin to experience what it is that he's done. We begin to realize, friends, that he's secured you for all eternity. He's gone to prepare a place for you and he's coming back. You will experience the fullness of his glory. All of the image of Christ has been credited to you will come to glorification one day as you sit around the table and you sup at the marriage supper of the Lamb and you will be known even as you want to know Christ and you will be like him and you will see him as he is, it is your absolute secure destiny. And to the degree that you break in to that reality here, to that degree will you experience the joy of Christ now. That, to that degree will you truly experience the joy of Christ now. When you break into that reality, how are you going to do it? Plead with the Lord. Plead with the Lord. He gives all good gifts to his children. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. If you ask him for bread and you need bread, is he going to give you a scorpion or a serpent? He gives all good gifts to those who will ask him. We have not because we ask not. We're not seeking him for it. We're not pleading with him for it. Last week at the end of the pastoral notes, I asked you to pray that something of October 1517 would break into October 2017. The question of our hearts is, do we want to see a revival and a reformation happen? Or would we just rather get a nicer home on the other side of town? Or enjoy a little better vacation next year. See, the question that's before us is, what do we really want? That's the question that's before us in the passage that's before us. What are we pursuing? Plead with the Lord for his grace. And you know what he'll do? He will answer it. He will answer it. He gives everything that his children need. He will answer it.
to the degree that we need it, to the determination of his will, he will answer it. For by grace, you have been saved by faith. And it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And what a gift it is. Father in heaven, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts to the glory of your grace and the gift that is Christ. Lord, we pray that you would dull our sensibilities for the things of this world that are vying idolatrously for our hearts. Father, I pray personally that you would bring down strongholds in my life, in our life as a congregation. And Father, I pray with faith and with boldness, knowing that you will do this because it is in accord with your will to make us into the image of Jesus, to fit us for the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord, I simply ask you, with the measure of faith that you've given in this moment, do not stop short of this work, but bring it to completion. Accomplish it now. Break into our hearts and our lives. And spread the glory of your grace as far as the curse is found. Meet us now in this way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.